Welcome to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I also lead Roos's Modern Deterrence Project, which studies such hostile activities and what to do about them. Think predatory economics, mysterious viruses, and bad Samaritans. And we propose solutions too. You can find On the Cusp wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And to learn more about modern deterrence, visit rusi.org slash modern deterrence, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. And you can tweet me too. I'm Elizabeth Braw. Many thanks to our partners at Willis House Watson for making this podcast possible. Now, NATO is most certainly not an aid agency. It's a military alliance, as we all know. But in recent weeks, it has been a surprising and welcome participant in member states' fight against coronavirus. I'm not saying that that's in response to an article I wrote for Defense One, where I suggested that NATO should get involved in the coronavirus response and that such a response would in fact be NATO's moment, an opportunity to prove NATO's relevance to those countless people who don't care about NATO or consider it a relic of the Cold War. But I'm saying that it's good news. Consider this. NATO's Euro-Atlantic Disaster Response Coordination Center, which most people had probably never heard of, has been fielding requests uh, for medical supplies from NATO member states and partners. Through the Crisis Hub, other states can respond to the countries that have uh, logged appeals for help. And those countries that have applied for help include Ukraine, Spain, Montenegro, Italy, Albania, North Macedonia, Moldova, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Georgia, Colombia, Slovenia, Afghanistan and Mongolia. And the helpers include, for example, Hungary, which has sent 100,000 masks and 5,000 overalls to Moldova. Lithuania has sent money to Armenia, Georgia, Moldova and Ukraine. And the biggest helper is the United States, which has, for example, sent 379 protection suits, 101 pairs of protective gloves, 48 pairs of protective goggles, six bullhorns, 18 sleeping bags, 10 sleeping cots, and nine diesel air theaters to Moldova. It has sent supplies to Bosnia-Herzegovina, and the US government has sent $50 million to Italy. And that's just a portion of what's being given within NATO. NATO has even funded 3D printing of a ventilator mask made by an Italian startup and donated the goods to the Italian authorities. And of course, armed forces in virtually all NATO member states are vital in helping doctors, nurses and other civilians fight the coronavirus. They've built hospitals, they are carrying out coronavirus tests, and in some countries, the armed forces have put their doctors and nurses at the disposal of civilian authorities. And let's not forget the Italian and French coronavirus intensive care patients who have been airlifted to Germany by the Bundeswehr. My guest today is Gedramas Jigelinskas, who is NATO's Assistant Secretary General for Executive Management. And he is also NATO's youngest Assistant Secretary General. And he has arrived or he arrived at NATO uh, following a very distinguished career, even at a young age. He is a Lithuanian, a national and graduated from West Point. And after that became an army officer in the Lithuanian Armed Forces and then became a banker and uh, worked in uh, on several continents and also managed to get an MBA at some point along the lines. Then uh, he became Lithuania's deputy minister of defense and as of last year is 
in his NATO role. So uh, a distinguished career already, Gedramas. Uh, but I think what many people would like to know is what the Assistant Secretary General for Executive Management and NATO actually does. <laughs> well, thank you, Elizabeth. That was a very kind introduction. Uh, uh, again, it's great to be here, uh, as always, speaking with you. And, uh, you know, just to quickly go about this, I joined NATO as a secret Assistant Secretary General for Executive Management about six months ago. Now, you know, to properly parlay what we do as executive management division, I think it's worth uh, taking a bit of a bird's eye view to understand what NATO does. Although I, I'm sure the, the audience here, your, your listeners are well aware of what NATO does and what it is. But I think it's in times of volatility and uncertainty, especially times like these in the, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, I think it's important to always re, re, sort of review the purpose of, of what we have as, as an organization. So NATO's mission, and I'm going to get to what executive management does really quickly. NATO's mission is to defend freedom. And that is a very simple and straightforward mission, to defend freedom. Now, as we know, NATO delivers on its mission by focusing on three big strands, and that's been elaborated in our strategic concept, collective defense, cooperative security, and crisis management. Again, very relevant both for this crisis and any other crisis. Now, the common metric for all these focus areas is relevance or fit for purpose. That's what Secretary General has been has been adamant about. You know, I think it's really for us to defend freedom, we need to be relevant. And that's where executive management comes in. Now, this relevance can be delivered through capability, policies, and missions, but also we need to have an organizational arrangement within NATO to really to enable this relevance. So, you know, executive management, really, our mission is to enable this relevance by focusing on four, again, very, I don't say traditional, but big pillars inside the organization. So first is uh, people. So this is essentially, you know, a human resources question. Now, we, we live in the talent wars. I'm, I'm more than convinced, you know, organizations need to compete for talent in these days. And, and NATO, as, as we all know, NATO is a knowledge-centric enterprise. So people are the center of what we do and of, our, of, you know, of the competition as we compete with other organizations. So we must hire well. We need to retain these sort of best people. And that means, of course, we need to train and retrain and bring in new skills to people so we're, you know, we're relevant with the, with the day of age. And again, at the end of the day, we want to become a, a learning organization, I think, and, and, and to advance and, and change constantly. Now, the second aspect, so people first, second is technology. And technology has to become an amplifier of NATO's capability. And that's what our executive management division is part of. And a big part of our what we do is really bringing that technology to NATO. For us, organization, it means we have to be equipped with safe, secure, capable, and, and a trusted technology to enable the connectivity and remote work. And I think, you know, as we see now, in the, in the middle of the COVID pandemic, a remote work is absolutely essential for any organization to have. It used to be sort of like a nice to have um, aspect, but nowadays, you know, remote work is really is really essential. I think it has exposed technology as a, as a critical aspect of any uh, continuity of, of business uh, processes. The third element is infrastructure and that kind of support services. We need to provide safe and secure place for North Atlantic Council. That's a that's the highest ranking. A NATO decision-making body to meet, to hold meetings, make decisions, 
and we support them both through interpretation, translation, and provision of a, of, of a proper, safe, trusted, you know, infrastructure. Now, the fourth aspect, you know, so people, technology, infrastructure, and the fourth is finance. I think finance is absolutely essential. We do have a financial team because we manage the budget, we plan it, we we execute this budget because again, proper budget ensures we deliver this relevance in in the in the previous three aspects of the organizations as people, technology, infrastructure. But we need to have, you know, finance as a, as something that has you know really enables uh, for us to 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 create what we need to do. So that's that's a long answer to your question, but that's that's this is what we do at executive management. Yeah, the the nuts and bolts of making the organization work. And yeah. as we have noticed, uh, I, th- I think we have all noticed during this coronavirus outbreak, NATO has become active in some unexpected ways, which is to coordinate and sometimes facilitate deliveries between different member states, which is really quite something. We all, I think most people think of NATO as a military alliance, which is really what it is. Yeah. And here we, we've got NATO strategic airlift transporting uh, medical supplies between different member states. How much has your office been involved in that? And and how much do you think is that uh, something that NATO should be doing? Because some people have been saying that's, uh, that's outside NATO's mandate. NATO is not a humanitarian organization, but it seems to have uh, been very helpful to member states. And as a result, to uh, many uh, coronavirus patients all over the alliance. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's an absolutely relevant and, and really critical question for us to answer. I think... It would be, again, it would be an understatement to say that we are in a unique period in history. I mean, this has all been unprecedented. We all are in uncharted waters. And it's, you know, we just have to sometimes react and think about what, how how the future will, will, will take from here. Now, from NATO's perspective, I think it's important to tackle the COVID-19 situation in really in two dimensions of, of the effort. Now, again, I want to put some structure around this. First is really the organizational-centric business continuity planning. That's where executive management, again, is playing a central role, assuring basically that the organization remains resilient to any dislocation. I've, I've spoken to that, all the four elements that we do. Again, the, the task force, the response team were set up. And again, they were responsible for sort of the immediate response what is happening. So that we're minimizing them. Again, these have become now standard uh, organizational uh, sort of measures that we see we see around the world, that minimizing the number of people in the building, ensuring that video technology, technology teleworking is used. I think various tactical steps, such as checking of temperatures for incoming employees, that's again, as uh, we're quick to implement that, and that has become really a standard, standard thing nowadays. Communication, again, another critical area. I think what we have noticed that the people both in the building and the overall in the organization are hungry for information, for for not just any information, for trusted information. We have seen a lot of, and you know that much better than I, we've seen you know, the Chinese-Russian efforts to really affect the whole information environment by providing some, some sort of fake and, and dislocated news that they're just not, not trusted. So again, people are hungry for information and it's always more important to over-communicate rather than under-communicate. Now, again, the, the mission is very clear here. Accomplish the mission. So meaning making sure that we're relevant and take care of our people. Safety, obviously, is first. Now, uh, the second strand, again, it's a, it's a little bit more convoluted from, a, from NATO's perspective. But, but uh, I think Secretary General has been very clear and uh, consistently adamant that NATO is not necessarily a first responder in crises like this. 
but we have a role to play. And to be honest, NATO has been created for this, for this purpose, to, to making sure that we're able to manage the crises so they're not able to evolve into something bigger, a bigger, a real kinetic or, or non-kinetic conflict. I think crisis is really the, the sort of the dimension where we should be striving to operate and deal with that, you know, going forward. Now, of course, as I said, we're in uncharted waters, but it doesn't, doesn't excuse us to not to think about what we can do. So I think in terms of actions, I think you, you mentioned the whole, the whole aspect of uh, airlift, that's uh, airlift logistics underpin our efforts. I think what we have seen, I think, in the, in, in the crisis at the national levels, when you look at each national, each NATO nation, we've seen the importance of the national whole of government efforts. And this is something I think you can relate very much through whole modern deterrence paradigm that you run at RUSI, is that, uh, you know, nations will continue to, to do a whole government approach. Now, what's the role of NATO? I think, you know, nations can only do so much internally. So we're here to provide really coordination. Secure General Todd uh, Walters has been tasked to really run this coordination effort as well as planning efforts. And we are utilizing you know, airlift capabilities through, through s- several programs that we have at NATO. And I think, again, a big part of this effort also is the, is the whole communications war. I mean, we have to, you know, we, we are providing a lot of, goods being sent by countries through through different countries through cooperation these are nato assets that are being used but maybe we have been falling short of communicating effectively i think we've caught up with that but i think initially as we've seen you know the the, the russian chinese efforts in this aspect were, were very very aggressive so in in short i think yes it's we're not necessarily a first responder but crisis is really the mode that we should be very comfortable with, because again, this is our job. I mean, our job is to deter uh, conflict, uh, to deter aggressors, to to defend NATO nations, and really in crisis modes, this is where we should be best. So I think we're we're well equipped. We're learning, of course. There's a lot of lessons learned will be done and are are being looked at at the moment. But I think we're, you know, this is something that I'm I'm, I'm quite positive we can we can uh, come out stronger from. And if, if NATO doesn't take action, if, if it hadn't taken action, that would have been an even better opportunity for Russia and China to present themselves as, as helpers in this coronavirus crisis. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, this is, uh, you know, I think we're sometimes forgetting. We think that this is we're fighting the invisible enemy of the of the coronavirus. But we're also, you know, this is uh, um, uh, still a still a very much a uh, uh, geopolitical struggle at at the very core of it i think it's uh you know national interests are not going going away and we see that very clearly in in in, in some actions from from russia and china and as, as well as other uh, other countries you know national interests will be defended and and countries will act and you know the wars will not disappear just because the coronavirus is, is spreading so we have we have a role to play and we will continue to do that one problem that NATO has is that approval ratings are, are going down in a number of countries, not so much in, in the United States as in some other founding uh, member states of, of the alliance. And that is obviously deeply concerning. And I think a reason for that is that NATO is seen as a, as a relic of the past, as a militaristic organization and as, and as an organization that represents something that really isn't relevant anymore because from most people's perspective, 
an armed attack on Europe or, or North America isn't really that uh, serious of a, of a prospect anymore. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? And, and how do you think you personally and, and your part of NATO, how can you help maybe correct that picture or, or change people's perception of, of uh, NATO's relevance? Well, that's, again, another excellent question. I think let me just tackle that, I think, one by one. I think regarding approval ratings, the ratings will always fluctuate. I think they go up, they go down. It's just like stock market. It's uh, it's kind of oftentimes hard to predict. And often these ratings fluctuate really because of some, you know, external factors that are outside of anyone's control, let alone our our, our control, because again, we're, we're very much an international alliance with 30, 30 member states. Uh, the point is that, again, we're not playing to score more. I think we're we're playing to be to remain relevant. Yet, I'm, I'm really with you on this. The citizens, um, the, the public of NATO nation states are the ultimate stakeholders. And these stakeholders must see and understand for themselves how you know, NATO is contributing to the well-being of, of the society. I think without that, it's very hard to defend that raison d'etre. And that actually may become even harder when the budgets become more strained. And then the governments, where they need to allocate the pie, when the pie has shrunk, does become very difficult to to allocate the you know specific uh, or sufficient attention to to defense matters. You know, I think just to tangent a bit, I think it's interesting how you know finally people are recognizing that the medical service, the doctors, and the whole the medical community are as saviors and heroes. You know, I think this is exactly where we we want to be. I think we. Uh, it's more obvious now that nations must rally the resources and ensure that medical personnel and overall the kind of medical architectures that we have in nationally have right tools and in this crisis. And I think it's you know we know that we need to in, in, invest in these in these uh, in these elements. I think you know it used to be soldiers like that. We used to be in in, in war times. You know that that's what uh, that's where the military and, and defense spending comes in. But I think we have to one. Thing, Elizabeth. Remember one thing, Elizabeth. I think human nature just doesn't change. And why does that matter? I think, well, again, the fight against viruses and diseases does not eliminate future wars. We have seen some great human behavior, generosity, cooperation, empathy. And because we are humans, I think this shows that we live in this great world. And because we're humans, I think we will overcome COVID through our ingenuity and creativity. But we also... I think we we have seen, call it typical behavior, something we've, as I mentioned before, the cyber attacks, disinformation attacks, you know, which actually amplify the impact as we are in isolation. So social distancing does not prevent these attacks. And again, and that's really just a very tip of the iceberg of what, of what these sort of rogue actors and rogue nations do. So the point of all this, I think, human nature does not change. National interest, as I'll just repeat it myself again, will remain there as really the true north of what nations do. Competition among nations has not gone away, and likely, I think, it's going to intensify further because we we continue to live in a in a in a high intensity world, and we'll continue to do that for the foreseeable future. So the importance of NATO, I think, as you mentioned, the kind of military, the bastion of of a uh, of militarism. Well, as a military, I'm. I think bastion of militarism is not a bad thing, impenetrable or inflexible or, you know, hard to change bastion, that becomes a problem. But the the importance of NATO as a military alliance, I think, remains. We will emerge into a different world 
But we should not let ourselves get tricked that military might and defense capabilities are unimportant. I think they will remain crucial. I think one uh, just recently in the, in the London Review of Books, um, there was an article about the 1348. That's that's when the, the Black Death was sweeping through Europe. And it came to England where King Edward III, at the height of the of this epidemic in London, was really arming himself and hitting the the gates of Calais in France, you know, waging war. The, the epidemic of those proportions in in 1348, which was you know, what third or half people have have died in in, in during the epidemic, did not prevent war. So we, I think, it gives us a lesson. I think that you know we're we're actually ourselves here. You know, not in a very uh, different different paradigm now. I don't know if that should be really, you know, changing the perception of NATO as a military bastion. Again, I don't know if that should be our focus. I think our focus will, and energy that we want to put should be on keeping a relevant organization. I think that's what we do as as an executive management division for the organization. But overall, through capability building, through missions, through partnerships, organization, I think it needs to remain relevant. And again, NATO's mission is very simple, to defend freedom. Now, historically, NATO used its military political tools to deliver on, on this mission. and But we see now that the whole deterrence field is, is just much wider. And I think it goes beyond the military dimension that we talk about. I think to, to, to defend freedom, military edge is essential, but no longer sufficient. Uh, the whole 5G debate. I mean, the whole 5G is, is the clearest proof that defending freedom now involves also a fight for the supremacy of technological standard, which is... You know, unthinkable could have been unthinkable. You know, a couple of years ago, the same thing I think goes from uh, kind of strategic infrastructure assets located in our countries, emerging technologies uh, are on the radar of the Chinese and other actors to be to be acquired. I think you have written, and I think you've seen a lot of it that we need to be aware now, as markets have tanked and and went down, there there, there is a risk now that you know certain actors can come in and try to acquire certain strategic assets in in NATO countries. And exactly. you know, yeah, so it's something, and, something, you know, yeah. And those strategic assets don't necessarily need to be defense contractors, defense companies. Those uh, such companies are already well monitored by government. But Chinese companies in particular, I think, are likely to buy companies that are not that well monitored by governments and, and companies that make goods or services that we wouldn't ordinarily think of as strategic, but that will yeah. emerge as strategic once we no longer have them. Uh, but along those lines, uh, I wanted to ask you, I know you're you're keen to innovate and and um, and, and you come to NATO from a with a very unusual background with with your career in, in, in banking and more widely in, in business. And so NATO is is obviously a uh, an international organization, multinational organization, can NATO innovate? Can your part of NATO innovate? Well, that's such a big, big and relevant question. I think in short, if I thought NATO was incapable to innovate, I would not be here. So that that's that is a short answer. But you know, a whole innovation called the word and it's a, it's, I think it used to be a king of all the buzzwords now it's been overtaken by covid and resilience and other other such terms but innovation is not going anywhere because it's it's something quite essential I think for all of us to, to, to do now when I look back historically we can see that NATO has adapted multiple times 
It has experienced numerous crises over the 70 years that we were in operation, and it's always emerged stronger than before. I think my, my friend Seth Johnson has a book, How NATO Adapts. Uh, that's a very good compendium of, of, of the various crises, and it sort of delineates of how NATO has responded to each crisis and how it sort of it has innovated. I mean, it's a different kind of innovation, but it has innovated before. Now, even very recently, the post-2014, I think NATO's adaptation has been remarkable. And I'm not just saying that because I'm I'm now a NATO official. I used to say that when I was a deputy minister of defense. I think the EFP groups, the the whole battle groups there, they're being pushed forward to the eastern frontier of NATO. I think enhanced readiness, it's it's a a huge change in the business as usual, how, how NATO operates. So this brings optimism, and I think NATO can change, and it will change. It will continue to change. Now, when you ask a question about innovation, now can NATO innovate? And I assume I think we're talking a bit, a bit deeper, a bit more specific about the, they call it real innovation, something that you would see in you know at the startups at Silicon Valley kind of uh, enterprises, etc. I think you know that's a much more uh, a much more tricky question, and and. You know, can we innovate at that scale or speed? That would be a very, I would be very hard pressed, hardly pressed to say that we can. We can, but that's a problem of any large institution, but especially an institution that is made of you know thirty stakeholders. That's to innovate it at that scale or speed would be hard. But we're not alone in this. I think every government, every international organization understand they need to innovate. And it, it, nobody will tell you, I think, whether if you're in the in the UN or OECD or Citigroup or, or JP Morgan, that, well, we don't like innovation. But the point is, everybody wants to innovate. But the dynamic elements in the organization are just such that, you know, it, it, it is a struggle. But there, there are a couple of things that I will say really in two words that uh, I think we can do to innovate. And first is culture and second is partnership. So in culture, I think we're, you know, it's it's what we ought to be, what we what we should become. I mean, and I think, again, this is something for us as, as leadership or the organization to raise, but also for a grassroots level in the organization and for nations to understand that, you know, as a culture, we need to become agile and nimble and make quick decisions. We want to be less hierarchical, breaking down sort of unnecessary steps in the processes and the hierarchies. And, you know, to be honest, you know, in, in equal terms as me, we are a quasi-military organization. So to, to break down hierarchies, that takes a lot of uh, a lot of effort and a lot of effort energy. Effort and time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and willing, you know, we want to be become willing to fail. You know, I think this crisis has really has, the, the COVID crisis has, uh, has shown we can actually push the decision making down to the lower levels, allow people to to make some errors, mistakes, and then come back, let's reiterate more and continue to to progress. Uh, and that is fine. Essential in this, in this part is really about the culture. We want to have a trust-based environment where it's sort of call it the people-positive organization. I think I've used it in some managerial term you know, from some book. But I think we also have to realize that NATO operates in a large ecosystem of stakeholders. So it's really about being complexity conscious. And the culture we want to be a part of is really... Diversity and inclusion is two words. We want to have diverse teams and have an inclusive working environment. And this will lead to insights. And every insight is really part of innovation, I think. You know, the, the, the new ideas, creative ideas. And I think 
But we need to, it's, it starts, uh, I think it starts with the culture. And the second thing, the second word I'm, I was going to say is partnerships. Again, very, very essential. I think as, as we venture out into the realms less traveled, such as, you know, mentioned earlier, the 5G, the, the technology infrastructure, et cetera, I think partnerships are essential because we just do not have all the expertise in-house. So we need to cooperate on technology, on how to understand the whole data aspects, the privacy matters, you know, climate change. This is, you know, the world is becoming much broader. And I think that our rivals, our traditional rivals, such as China and Russia, they have been investing, for example, in technologies in a in a quite, you know, relatively efficient way. I mean, these are not democratic states. They can, you know, the, the authoritative figure there can tell, well, I'm going to put this many billions into this technology and they will do it. Now, I think this takes out some creative juices out of the process, uh, and that's where I think our advantage is. But again, at the end of the day, with government budgets, we, we can only expect that the government budgets will continue to be strained. We'll have a lot more debt as we get out of this crisis. Funding for these technologies, for, for example, defense technologies, will be, will be hard to come by. And I think that's where we need to have more cooperation, with, with more partnerships with the uh, private with in, private sector with institutes and so forth and i think that's uh, you know this is something you know for i think it's an opportunity to be, to be honest with you and i think I also think i think just to finish this quick question uh, i think innovation tends to gain traction in times of volatility it, and and i think this is exactly there's certain areas that will just boost accelerate we see that in in a in a future work in in the working environment sort of uh, aspects it just innovation tends to accelerate. And I think it's, this is something we're, I'm, I'm very positive about. Yes. And, and innovation actually is often triggered by crises when you, when you do have to, to uh, think differently and, and, and complacency is no longer an option. Uh, very quickly, speaking of our adversaries, I know NATO headquarters is under lockdown, partial lockdown, like most uh, workplaces are. So uh, without giving any secrets away, can you tell me how your office or how the, the NATO headquarters is working? How many people are are inside the building and how many are working from home? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think, uh, to be honest, I think we have managed to, to contain the virus while well, knock on wood so far pretty well. We had the several cases who never a member of the headquarters, maybe some somebody from a family and so forth. I mean, we are a five thousand people enterprise, and then you you had families. You get you know you get close to you know ten ten thousand or more people in the whole ecosystem of, of NATO headquarters infrastructure. Even despite the lockdown, I think we're because the building is large, because we're implementing these measures, we're still able to operate. You know, I would say twenty five to thirty percent of people can come in. Can any time we hold meetings, both virtually and and sometimes in 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 person, and I think it really has not disrupted. I mean, initial shock is always is always painful when when so when things start rolling, but I think at the end of the day we're able to contain the virus, making sure that people are safe. We're still you know twenty five thirty percent that that's that's a big that's a big number. And we continue to do that, and I think this is uh, it, it's yielding good results. We're, we're delivering on on Secretary General's priorities on the nation's uh, sort of priorities list. So, you know, uh, you know, obviously we're looking forward to uh, reopening and and having real meetings because I think nothing can substitute the live meeting. But also, it's a new paradigm. So it's we just we responded, and that's what we wanted to be be, be able to respond, be able to respond 
and be agile when the crisis hits. So this is where we are. And indeed, uh, it may turn out that the architect of the new NATO headquarters was a genius. I know many people have <laughs> complained that the building is too yeah. big and it feels deserted, yeah. but it uh, turns out it may have been built for social distancing. Yeah. Gerdramas Jigenskas, Assistant Secretary General for Executive Management, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Elizabeth. It was a pleasure. Should NATO become more involved in disaster response? Or is disaster response a dangerous diversion from NATO's core mission? And how can NATO innovate better? Tweet me your thoughts and suggestions. My Twitter handle again is Elizabeth Braw. Many thanks to our producer, Tom Ascott. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who's doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp.